detach yourself on your weary backs, you jolly frontal rise. For we are 17 weeks at number one in the podcast charts. Brian Adams is but a dot in our rear view mirror. We've taken Brian Adams to the vet. And with a choke in our mouth and red eyes, he has been put out of his misery. Thank you very much for subscribing to the podcast and leaving pleasurable reviews and recommending this podcast to your cunting friends. You are the wind beneath my greasy wings. I am an albatross. I am a podcast albatross with greasy wings because someone has put talcum powder on them. This week's podcast is going to be a live recording. Last weekend I was up in Belfast in the north of Ireland for the first ever live blind by podcast gig and oh it was lovely. It was very successful. It was good crack. Unbelievable fucking crack, in fact. I had a most magnificent guest by the name of Donzo. And Donzo is part of a a duo called Dead Centre Tours. You can get them at deadcentertours.com. And Donzo is a local historian of Belfast. And he does award-winning tours on the history of terrorism in Belfast City. And he takes people on tours from the loyalist areas and the republican areas and presents a a non-sectarian view. He presents a tour that is fact-based and does not contain an agenda or ideology and it's for this reason that it is award-winning. And Danzo was recommended to me because he is a gas cunt. The podcast took place in Duncairn on the north side of Belfast City, which is a Republican area very close to the loyalist Shankill Road. And it's fair to say that the majority of the audience would have been nationalist, Republican, Catholic. And Donzo himself is he's a Protestant, but he certainly isn't sectori- sectarian. He would describe himself as more socialist than anything. He's not interested in sectarian politics. But nonetheless, there was a slight tension in the room during the recording because you've got an audience full of tigs and my guest is a praddy. So that led to a a, a really wonderful discussion, a nice nice discussion with a nice bit of uh, tension and laughter and crack. For me in particular, I found it very exciting because I am not from the north of Ireland, I'm from the south of Ireland. And my experience of the troubles in the north, firstly, they're from my childhood. Secondly, they were delivered to me through the lens of the media, which is not something to be fully trusted. And my opinions of the north are quite ignorant. I have no empathic frame of reference for the culture of the north of Ireland or what it is like to have grown up there. For our listeners who are not from the island of Ireland, the north of Ireland 
is the territory of the British Empire. And up until the mid-90s, a, a very violent, long-running sectarian conflict took place. And a lot of the members of the audience remember this. Donzo lived through it. So this was eye-opening for me. And I got to be an ignorant southern tig. And I got to ask some dumb questions. And I got some very articulate and interesting answers. And it was a pleasure to be in this audience. It was a pleasure to share in that. Alongside me, I had my accomplice, DJ Willie, or DJ, who was recording the, prod- the podcast. So when you hear some high-pitched squeaking noises throughout this podcast, that is merely Willie vocalising his opinions. Willie nearly managed to fuck up the entire podcast because we had a bit of a road trip. I said to Willie, right, Willie, we're going to... We're going to Belfast, man. How are we going to get up there? I don't have a car. Willie doesn't have a car. So I said, Willie, look, you book a car, rent one out. I'll pay you later. So Willie did. So on the morning of Saturday, we were due to go to Belfast. Willie went to book the car, but he didn't have enough money on his credit card. So they weren't going to give him the car. And then I said, can I pay for the car on my credit card? They said no, and I said why? Because you don't have a driving license. So we almost didn't get to Belfast because we couldn't rent a car. I gave Willie 100 euro, we transferred it into his account, and then we had a beautiful car. And we had a most magnificent road trip all the way to Belfast where we listened to nothing but the finest of 90s West Coast G Funk. I'm very determined to maintain the podcast hug on this podcast, as you know, which is the calming, relaxing feeling that a lot of people tune in for. However, as you know, I have explained several times before that in my life I've experienced uh, social anxiety, you know. Now, I'm all right with that now, but still, I'm not great in crowds of people. I will become more animated and more excited because crowds of people it's not necessarily my comfort zone I can be comfortable within that crowd of people but I it's it's difficult for me to be fully relaxed so one thing you will notice throughout this recording is I'm a lot more animated than you would be used to hearing me and I hope that this does not interfere with your podcast hug. I suggest putting on a new set of ears when you listen to this live podcast. There'll be a number of uh, live podcasts coming up. Um, I'm going back to Belfast in, in May. On May 4th, the fucking Limelight Theatre. And I'm in Wexford. I'm in Ennis Carty in Wexford as well in a couple of weeks. Go on to our Twitter if you want the details for that. And um, Before we get to the interview, I would like to thank everybody who contributes to the Patreon account. This uh, podcast does not have a sponsor and it is driven by the generosity of everybody who likes to contribute to the Patreon. So that Patreon is patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And if you can contribute to that, please do. Um, 
you know, a euro or whatever you want. The Patreon is probably one of the greatest things in my life at the moment because I'm getting paid for making this podcast, which I love doing, which is just a fucking amazing, wonderful feeling. And in 17 years of doing shit online, this is the first time I'm getting paid for online content. It's incredible. So thank you so much. But if you don't have the money, you don't have to contribute. It's no problem. You're still going to get the podcast for free. You can't. No problem. Um, before we move on to the interview, uh, what? I, please give me feedback after you hear the podcast. Give me feedback and let me know if the live setting worked for you. Let me know if, you know, I, I, I'd hate to have you disappointed because this is a live podcast this week. I don't want to have you feeling left out. So give me a shout. Let me know what you think about it. And if you felt your podcast hug diminished by the live recording, or if you found your podcast hug developed into some type of podcast jumping jack, some type of exuberant, exhilarant podcast experience, I don't know. Okay, here is the interview in with the beautiful people of Duncan in Belfast. And Danza. Yeah. I wasn't sure about fucking, you know, what am I going to do for a guest, you know, I was thinking, so I asked Twitter, I said, I went on to Twitter, I said, I'm doing a gig up in Belfast, who would you recommend? And several people recommended a man by the name of Danzo. And Danzo does tours of, what do you call them, the areas of the Troubles? Troubled areas? Yeah. You know, you're from Belfast, like. But he's got award-winning tours, and apparently he's a bit of a gas cunt as well. And he can do a bit of talking. And for me, the other part is I was going, shit, I'm going up to Belfast, talking to an audience from fucking Belfast, and then bringing on a Belfast historian to tell them about history they already know about, because they're from Belfast. <laughs> so, but then I started thinking, I'm from Limerick, and I know nothing about Limerick until it was forced on me. So it could be educational as well. Um, so we bring on Danzo. Danzo! You look like a professional darts player. So, um... What do you do, Danzo? What's the crack? What the crack? I, uh... Hold on, have we got this? Not on. Can we hear... Does he need to be closer, will he? You manipulate Danzo's mic there like a good man. Thank you very much. See, that's very intimidating for poor old Danzo. <laughs> um, what do I do? Yeah, tell us, tell us what the crack is. Bearing in mind as well, we've got a live audience, but as well, this podcast goes out to... 200,000 people. So, it, it fucking does. Some of them Yanks, some of them Southerners. I've got uh, one person in Sierra Leone. Okay. And uh, 50 people in Hong Kong. So, like, all over the world. So, oh, if, if we can, uh, yeah, explain what you do. If, if, got, pretend I'm from Sierra Leone. Talk to me like I'm from Sierra okay, Leone. Okay. Got, got an award winning tour. 
going around the state centre tours, the history of terror, it examines the history of the conflict really between 1969 and 1994. We do it at the city centre or we do it out in the interface neighbourhoods of West Belfast, the Falls and the Shackle, etc. It's a walking tour, it's a visual tour, it's an exploration of history. It also seeks to be as non-partisan as you can be in a very partisan society. It presents the, presents the perspectives of Republicans, of Loyalists, Unionists, Nationalists and others, because there's different narratives out there. And you're, you're on others. I'm many things to many people. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question, now what I did with the questions is, I'm, I like, I wanted to ask the internet what questions to ask in order to democratise the conversation. Mainly because if I asked my own questions, I'd be called a Marxist cook who's funded by George Soros. <laughs> so the best way to do it is this democratic thing called the internet exists. So I said, here's the crack, I've got Danzo on, this is what he does, you give me the questions. So all the questions tonight are going to be from the internet. So the first question that I... What? Well, don't I say it to Danzo, don't ask me. Is Jerry Adams in the IRA? I'm actually going to say no, he stood down today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks for that, Willie, you kind of... <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I met Jerry Adams once in real life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here's the thing. I met the, I've only met him once. I don't think I'm going to meet him again. But when I met him, I happened to be dressed as a black and tan. <laughs> we were... <laughs> we did a documentary for RTE on the 1916 Rising, right? And... One of the things in this documentary that I was trying to do is outside the fucking, the GPO, right? You've got a statue of Jim Larkin, who is a socialist, communist. Mm -hmm. Well, he'd be a socialist, I wouldn't call him a communist. He was an anarcho-syndicalist. An anar <laughs> <laughs> he was a... He's a scouser. A pretty much, he was a lefty, right? So you've got the GPO, Jim Larkin outside with his big brown hands, but then, we were asked to do this documentary in 1916 and 2016, but on looking at this statue of Jim Larkin outside the GPO, it's like, oh, brilliant, there's Jim with his socialist ideals, but all around him was fucking Burger King, Starbucks, the opposite of fucking socialist ideals. So I figured, right, okay, the only legitimate way, in order for me to reflect that hypocrisy, then I then have to read out the proclamation outside the GPO dressed as a black and tan. Because it's, that's as offensive as fucking Jim Larkin being beside a Starbucks. <laughs> so I was dressed up as a tan, and the day that we were filming was the day that Sinn Féin had chosen to recreate and commemorate O'Donovan Ross's funeral in Wynn's Hotel. So Sinn Féin were all there dressed up as volunteers, and we were there... <laughs> They were fully, like, reading fucking Pierce's speech at, at, at O'Donovan, like, really solemn and straightforward, like Jerry Adams as well, you know? And then I, I, I'm, so we're there in the hotel that we happened to accidentally book as the same hotel as Sinn Féin doing their reenactment. 
us dressed as black and tans, being very apologetic. Sorry, Sinn Féin, sorry, Sinn Féin. Because they thought it was deliberate. They thought they were deliberately doing it to piss them off. We weren't. It was an accident. And then as I'm looking at all the shinners dressed as fucking volunteers, I bump into Jerry Adams. I'm like, oh, fuck, there's Jerry Adams. So he's there as a volunteer, and I'm there as a black and tan. And I want that moment written on my grave. <laughs> Did you speak to him? Did I speak to Jerry? Yeah. A little bit. He follows us on Twitter. Oh, wait. He does, yeah. He does. He likes to cover a lot of shit up with duck jokes. Uh, yeah. So anyway... I'm not buying it. That beard is too friendly. Um, so we got a lovely question here. Fella says here, I'm from the north and I'm living now down south and my girlfriend is Egyptian. And she's really confused about how the communities mirror themselves to Israel and Palestine. I'd like to hear a proper answer on the parallels and the limit to which those, which those parallels go. Right, a wee easy one to start with then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this, this is the end of your enjoyable evening, by the way, folks. Brace yourself, you know. There are parallels. I mean, if you go onto the falls, you'll see ANC murals, you'll see ANC flags. You know, and what, what is the ANC for our Cambodian listeners? Uh, and it's absolutely, well, actually, first of all, it's absolutely nothing to do with Palestine. I've completely caught yeah. up there already, okay? You'll see Palestinian flags, etc. Um, and Republicans tend to see themselves as part of an international network of oppressed peoples, etc. You do have that duplication on the loyalist side. You'll see Israeli flags. And some people see that as a knee-jerk response. If they take that side, therefore, we'll take the other. But there's something deeper than that. Some people in the loyalist community, for example, identify with Israelis because they see themselves, rightly or wrongly, as a marginalised, misunderstood people surrounded by hostile natives, etc. You do have an element of the tit-for-tat, but you get some superb anom anomalies. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you'll get people coming over to support loyalist parades, etc. Some of them, not all, come from the far right of British politics. They're pretty anti-Semitic, and then they see Israeli flags in loyalist areas, and they get very upset about this. <laughs> Suddenly, it's not, it's not making sense anymore, you know? Had a cracker example about five years ago. There was a tour, not one of ours, it was a bus tour of Americans who were very sympathetic to the Irish nationalist Republican position, and they were going around the sites of Republican West Belfast. Then they get to the international wall, and at that point in time, there was a mural of Fidel Castro celebrating the Cuban Revolution, and the Cuban-Americans on the bus suddenly go apeshit, storm <laughs> off the tour, you know? So that model of one conflict automatically transfers to another conflict can be very problematic, with lovely results sometimes. But what I've always wondered is, like, like how reactionary... Like, has someone ever tried to put that to the test? Like, would say, if, if all the fucking nationalists start eating Smarties, does that mean the loyalists start eating Skittles? It's, it's, it's already happened. Already happened. But, like, what, what do you think? Like, like how much, like, I, you said that to me earlier on about the, the unionists view themselves in the way that the Israelis would, in that they are this minority surrounded by mm -hmm. hostility. Mm -hmm. Is that legit? Is that really what the unionists say? Uh, many unionists do so. I mean, that's been quite clearly documented. There's also a school of unionism. Now, it's a minority school, but there's a group called the British Israelites. Okay. Oh, fuck. Oh, I've, been, I've been getting balls go. deep in them recently. Uh, oh, yeah. They, yep. they tried to dig up Newgrange looking for the Holy Grail, yep. and uh, WB8 stopped them. And they, they, Fact! They, they do believe that they are descendant of the lost tribe of Israel, mm. and that the Ulster Protestants are actually God's lost tribe in some way. Now, I've had Israeli It's a Masonic. It's a, it's a strange little Masonic thing as well, isn't there? It's, 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 well, even within cults, within subcults, it's quite uh, 
it's quite minute in many ways, but some and, of the leaders still of exist. unionism, yeah, are quite people like Nelson Causland, for example, who's been a government minister here, subscribe to this. Nothing to worry about there. But uh, were you familiar with the British Israelites? Have you heard about them? They think that the the Holy Grail is buried in it's either Newgrange or the Hill of Tara. But it's, ac it's actually Milltown, which is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, odd cunts. Is the only, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, they genuinely believe this has to be descended from the twelve tribes of Israel. You know. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, that, that fits in with that Israeli identification as well. You can see a strange sort of linkage in so there. So does that mean you're, like, you will get uh, a unionist claiming anti-Semitism because he's originally a Jew from a couple of thousand years ago? Like, I mean, how far are they going to take it? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Also interestingly, though, if you go onto the Shangle now, on the Northumberland Street, uh, the Loyalist side of the interface, there is actually uh, a, there's a mural depicting and some memorial to the Holocaust. So you can see that's that linkage taking place there. And ironically, beside it, there's actually a mural depicting the role of Polish, overwhelmingly Catholic airmen in the Battle of Britain. So there's all sorts of messages going on out there. What exactly they all mean. Sometimes you'd need to speak to the message bearers to find out what it is that they're actually trying to say. And the thing is that the the optimist in me, like there's one thing with uh, down south, right? We're now seeing down south a, a rise of, we say, racism. Mm -hmm. That it's kind of a thing with my generation. We didn't really have it as there wasn't enough immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd be getting pissed off at nothing. But now we're getting immigrants, and the rise of racism, nationalism, all of that shit is happening down south. So I like to. It would be nice for, we say, Irish people down south to be aware of their history of oppression, so that can then. Communicate as an empathy towards people who are being oppressed, mm -hmm. and I know up north now you're having similar issues. Yep. With on both sides of the community, mm -hmm. people are coming, refugees are coming in, and that is now the direction of anger. But is there a possible benefit? We'll say, if the unionist community are identifying with something like the Holocaust, that that can transcend into a type of empathy that would mean stop spitting at the Syrian man. Well, it's actually one of the most complicated issues we have at the minute, and it's an emergent issue. You know, we're, we're new to racism, it's, it's new in town in some ways, you know. Um, and you have, you have a perception out there that in the unionist community, racist incidents against uh, people from outside. Down are, south, yeah. but again, see, the thing is with me down south is like, we know nothing. We know nothing about this shit. We're, we're, we've been fed a very, very simple narrative about this. And the narrative that we've been sold down south is pretty much... Um, if I was to frame it, it's like, oh, brilliant, look at the unionists being racists. Oh, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? That's genuine what it is down south. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, the unionists now, they, all, they have a problem now with Nigerians and Polish people, and the Catholics are being pure sound. And the, <laughs> the, the, but that's until I fucking, I did a gig uh, over the summer up in Lisbon, and I was a Catholic taxi driver who just spent the whole time complaining about Syrians. But the genuinely, the narrative we, we have down south is that the only, ra it's, it's a, we're told that the oppression that the unionists tried to bring against the Catholics is now being transformed identically now onto, we say, people of colour up north. Mm -hmm. And we're not told at all about nationalist or Catholic communities being in any way racist whatsoever because they're sound and they identify with, with Palestine. You have a very different structural issue here. When you have had racist incidents within nationalist communities, you've tended to have a very coherent response, usually led by Sinn Féin, white line pickets, protests, sympathy with uh, those who've been victimised, etc. Unionism is a broad church, and some people within unionism would be 
pretty right wing, and they would be that quite Protestant happy about that. Are quite broad. I know, and yeah. sitting yeah. I mean, we're sitting at, we're sitting in a Protestant church this yeah. evening, which is interesting in itself. Um, but you have also weaker structures within the loyalist and unionist community. So if people do feel angry about racism, which they say is not done in their name, they're not always immediately quick to structurally identify and protest against it. You know, so you have those issues, and generally. I know many unions who would quite happily say, yeah, we're pretty right wing. This is the turf that we sit on. Uh, nationalists tend to naturally uh, take ownership of the language of civil rights and of equality and of integrity. That's quite contentious again at the minute with some of the recent political statements. So you do seem to have very different responses. There's also another issue here. There's much higher housing demand in nationalist areas. There's much less housing. There's a lower demand in unionist areas, and you tend to have more people from ethnic uh, community backgrounds, immigrants, people from Eastern Europe, living in predominantly Protestant areas. So that's where you're going to have, nearly like empirically, statistically, yeah. the manifestation of that type of racism. So there's ideological reasons, there's structural social reasons as well. Yeah. And it's again, one model doesn't always fit others. Doesn't fit everything, you know. Was that a clap or someone opening a can? Yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Because again, we're taught, we're, we have a very simple narrative mm. down south, you know. Um, one lovely question here, and again, here's another narrative that we are kind of showing down south: that uh, nationalist murals are class, and then Protestant murals are badly drawn. <laughs> like genuinely. Uh -huh. Down south, it's like, oh, the murals are lovely, but don't go into our Protestant area because the eyes are too close together. Yeah. There, there is a classic example. There used to be a mural in the Craig Estate in East Belfast where George Best was, was, was brought up, and it was of a local UVF member who was actually killed by the SAS outside Queen's Students' Union. And I remember looking at it and talking to a local loyalist figure and saying, to him, it's very, very badly drawn. Look at this, this guy was called Willie Miller. Look at the state of that eye. It's very, very googly. And your man said to me, it's fucking brilliant. He said, well, he had a googly eye. It's absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe on that occasion, not so bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know one thing? One thing I've... One thing I've always wondered, and I haven't a clue about, right? You're essentially taking over the gable end of someone's house. Hmm. Yeah. Like, was that forced upon people, or was it voluntary, have the side of my house, or we're going to do this to the side of your house? I had a brilliant conversation. What if someone was Baha'i? Well, I had a brilliant conversation one time with a guy who used to be commander of C Company after Johnny Adair. He's now, you know, he's stood down, to put it euphemistically. Um, and I said to him, See the murals. What, what, are your, what do you think of them? He said, they're brilliant. This was when they were very militarised in the Lord Shangles state. And I said, what do your kids think of them? He says, oh, I fucking hate them. They hate them. They're terrified of them. I was going, this is your own kids. I said, what's the process then whereby you paint a mural on the wall? And he said, oh, like, we go and consult with people. We talk to the community. We talk to people. Do you mind if we paint a mural on your wall? Nobody ever objects. <laughs> and I just said, hold on, you've got about 2,000 men, you've got guns, you administer punishment beatings. He said, this is a bit like a North Korean election. 102% turnout, but not quite democratic somehow, you know. Because I was thinking as well, like, all right, we, we, like, what if we say those areas become gentrified? Then having a mural and... No, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Would it not be like having a fucking Banksy on the side of your house? 
and some yank moves in and he's got a UVF mural with googly eyes on the side of his house. <laughs> <laughs> but like, now that, you know what I mean, it, it is, like, how does that work? Like, do people want the house with the mural? Well, it's usually social housing that's going to be allocated. So you don't have a choice? No. Or you could say, I want to move in such and such an area, and I want that UFF mural's cracker. I'm sure it happens, like, you know what I mean? We don't have that down south. We just kick balls off the side of Gable Ends, don't we? All right. <laughs> um... Have you ever been, uh, have you ever been heckled on the tour? Um, not in any major way, given like the, where you're walking through, the nature of what you're talking about. And sometimes people do stop and they sort of listen out of the curiosity and, the, and they'll pass on by. The best heckle I ever did have those on High Street on a city centre tour, where a voice shouted from a car, don't believe him, he's a lying bastard. <laughs> right? <laughs> which, is, which is classy. But what was even classier was that the heckler was actually the Reverend Bill Shaw, who's vaguely associated, <laughs> vaguely associated with this enterprise here. So the group who I were with were sort of a bit stunned and taken aback, and I assured them it was okay. The heckler was actually a Presbyterian minister, and then they were startled, and I said to them, see, that's how fucking hard we are in Belfast. Presbyterian ministers speak like that, you know? <laughs> um... What's the story with, like, Catholics and Protestants dating each other during the height of the Troubles? Well, it happened. Very sinful, but it happened. Um, <laughs> you know, you know. sometimes, I mean, I know many people who, despite the, the most traumatic times the, of the Troubles, did, you know, fall in love. They yeah, what are you going to do, like? They got married, you know. Um, example, my, my family originally from the Shankle, one of my dad's sisters, married a guy in the late 60s from the New Lodge, just at the other side of the road. You know, they had to move out of Broome Street, which was right on an interface, because they were a mixed marriage on the, on the battle line. Now, my grandmother was very, very Protestant, good, loyal Protestant, Shackle Road woman. She accepted it. She never ostracised any of, of, of the, the grandchildren, etc. But my first cousin, the first son in that uh, marriage was called Sean. My grandmother, until her dying day, called him John. There was just, <laughs> there was just a little bit too far where you couldn't go. I also remember on Christmas Day, we used to go to my grandmother's in the Lower Shankill Estates, you know, at Boston of Sea Company, etc. It was Christmas Day, it was great, we're all family, we're having a good time. Then at three o'clock, the Queen's speech. Brilliant. The granny would crank it up to hear Her Majesty's words of wisdom. The two cousins, Sean and Jim, would go out the front, stand and have a fag, come back in at quarter past three when the Queen's speech was over, and nobody ever said a word. Except my dad used to whisper every... It was as nearly as, as traditional as the turkey. Elephant in the room time. Elephant in the room time. And to the non-Irish listeners there, fag is Belfast for cigarettes. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> we were talking earlier about um, <clears throat> kind of different linguistic things that would uh, differentiate a Catholic from a Protestant. Oh, and I thought feg was one because I thought, uh, ye have flags up here. And I thought flags just referred to the Union Jack. And I thought, that's how you tell. So if someone said feg, then they're a Protestant. A Protestant. But apparently not. No, no, no. I can scotch that myth straight away. And what about the, the alphabet? Was the other one a heart? Oh, I H and H. 
H and H, yeah. 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 That's a good one. I mean, and there are, there are linguistic cultural reasons with that to do with linguistic development, etc. But you can get the odd anomaly still. I always like the anomalies. My son, normally Protestant by background, has been at an undergraduate school since the age of four. His first teacher was from Dublin. She taught him the alphabet, and he says H. We live in predominantly Protestant East Belfast. And I used to say to him, Matthew, see you keep saying hate, son. See when you're out there in the streets in the playground, you're either going to have to learn, you're going to have to fight like fuck, or you're going to be able to run like fuck. Because <laughs> every time, every time you say hate, they're all going to think you're a Catholic, you're a Bill Craig, you know. Um, one thing I always wondered about, and I'd love to know if you know anything about it. And I don't know is it urban myth or not, right? But the south of America around Mississippi. And the people, the first Scotch-Irish that, the first Irish that colonised America yeah. were from the north. That's yeah, why the so many fucking... Yeah, the Presbyterians, yeah. they were subject to the penal laws. Yeah. So they had to get the fuck out as well. Yeah. So a lot, that's why so many American presidents are from like Antrim and shit yeah. like that. But I, I heard, this is the myth that I, and I can't trace it to any academic source, but, right, so you've got a load of fucking orange men essentially, right? So they're all named William. So then they go to Mississippi, and Presbyterians are quite strict, you know, so there's no drinking or anything like that. <clears throat> so when they had their little commune, if you drank, you were kicked out of the commune, and you had to go to the hills, and your name was William, so you're a hillbilly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I heard. And then the hillbillies who were kicked out, you know, they had uh, Scottish blood, essentially, so the sun would burn them. So then when the sun would burn their necks, their necks would become red. So then in order to solve the red neck, they would grow a mollus. <laughs> and then that turned into people in the north liking country music. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I... <laughs> I don't know where I heard it, but it's stuck in my head. Have you heard something similar? Is there any, is there any historians here? Is there, is there truth in that or is just, that just a smear campaign? Well, there's obviously the slight extremes of that are going to be debatable, etc. But that diaspora of Scots, Presbyterian Scots-Irish did hit the Appalachians. They did. Davy Crockett's family. And they have been called Billy. Like, come on, like, they were called Billy. Loads of them. Loads of them are called Billy, but Davy Crockett was called Davy. That's quite demonstrable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... But does that explain the country music thing? Nothing explains country music. <laughs> like, that's a general fucking... Like, what are you, what, what's that about, like? But it's like, I mean, there's a, there's a line in Ireland. It's from Monaghan up. Below Monaghan, we don't give a fuck about country music. You know what I mean? What's that? What is that? What, what's that? I know it doesn't... You're not going to get asked this on one of your fucking Troubles walking tours. But, like... <laughs> what the what's the story of a country music? What are you doing? What are you doing? Why? Well, it's a sort of it's a wonderful self-indulgent dirge, and it? it appeals to the sort of dour aspect of the Presbyterian but, character. But like, I, 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 I've never I've never given a decent totally tenuous, making us up as I go along. <laughs> I've intended to listen. Actually, anyone, please get onto me on Twitter and then send me some decent loyalist country music, will you, please? Because I've no I've no sources. I've no sources on it. But like. Country music, to me, like, it does have, there's a lot of cliché in it, there's a lot of, um, it relies upon pun. There's a lot of, my wife left me, um, I'm drinking too much, all this carry on. Is, is that the same with northern country music, northern Irish country music? And do Catholics do it too? 
Oh, absolutely. Probably worse to a certain degree. Is, 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 is it just a Protestant thing or a Catholic thing, the country music? It is. Are these people demonised? <laughs> <laughs> so technically it's a good thing then, because it's, it's crossing divides in society. Yes, there's, there's, there's this sort of parody of misery there, in some sense. <laughs> Here's a bit of a fucking hot take. <laughs> All right. Now, is it possible that emerging racism in Northern Ireland could connect the Protestant and Catholic community because now they can be pissed off with uh, Muslims? <laughs> Listen, I know that sounds terrible and I framed it in a terrible fashion, but that is historically, that type of shit happens. Like, even down in Limerick, um, we'll say Polish people in Limerick. If a Polish lad wants to become that little bit more Limerick, then it's a good idea for him to give out about Africans. And if he does that, then he becomes accepted a little bit in the community. And there's something I spoke about in the podcast uh, a few fucking episodes ago. There's a book called, called How the Irish Became White, right? And the central tenet of this book is that when the Catholic Irish went to America in the 17th century, early 18th century, and they were essentially, they, they came from a country with the penal laws, which is a racist system whereby... You couldn't own a fucking house, you couldn't have land, you couldn't have an education. Shut up, will you, Williams? <laughs> you couldn't have an education, you couldn't own a weapon. There was a systematic, a system of oppression against you if this was your religion. And fucking Calvinists and Presbyterians as well. But when these Irish people went to America from this system of, of oppression, they discovered the colour line. That basically when the Irish went there first, they were... The, the first Yanks were essentially Brits as such. Um, and they brought the anti-Irishness with them, but the Irish figured out that if they performed acts of violence against the African-American community, the freed slaves, they then climbed up the ladder of white privilege to become equal to their overrulers. So that's a thing that happens. Is that possible in Belfast? We're all going to unify because of some well, sort like, of... I mean, I, I always think that, that the other thing that got me thinking about it is... Did you see that fucking... Um, what, what's her name? The, the, the robot that talks. Um, artificial intelligence woman. You're all talking at once, lads. What's her name? See, now there you go, now. Devil air is out, lads. No, no, there's, um, there's an artificial intelligence robot. So it's this robot with artificial intelligence, and she has a name. And Alexa, is it Alexa? Sophie. Sophia, Sophia. So Sophia the robot was unveiled about two months ago. And Sophia is an android. She's the world's first android. And she has artificial intelligence that's... It's all the closest we'll get to human intelligence so far. So I saw the first video of Sophia. She's very terrifying because she's almost human. Do you know what I mean? And it's this thing called the uncanny valley where when, some, when something becomes almost human, it becomes terrifying. So Sophia was in a room full of lads from Saudi Arabia. So me, as someone from Limerick, when I look at a room full of people from Saudi Arabia, I view them as culturally different. They're dressed differently, they look differently, so they, I feel them as, that is an other. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when Sophia was in the room, she was so fucking freaky that they felt like one of me. <laughs> but do you get me? Do you get what I'm saying? 
Do you know what I'm saying? It's like when when it's it's like I always think that the the, the cure for racism on this earth is when 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 aliens come. Right. But it's true. If a fucking alien comes down with with twenty cocks and two and and two hats or whatever they do, or an arse for an elbow, we will then forget about the the petty divides that we have either because of sectarianism or because of skin colour because now there's a lad there with 20 cocks and two hats do you get what I'm saying so like now that's a very fucking devil's essentially what I'm saying there is racism good in Belfast lads is it good for us does it benefit us is it going to deplete sectarianism etc yeah like is there a possibility that it fucking no no No, you don't think so no so you'll end up with we hate Islam more than they do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 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 fucking hell <laughs> they're hating Islam wrong <laughs> Christ almighty alright are you keeping time at all Willie you're just drinking <laughs> what's that what? this is a very chaotic and odd podcast so far Don, so, isn't it yep yep <laughs> How did we get from the peace walls to this? Actually, the fucking peace walls. Are they outdated remnants of a bygone era that should be demolished or a necessary evil? And that question comes from Vincent Brown. Right, okay. You know, I had some out in a tour last week, an English guy, 49, same age as himself, and he said, I didn't realise there was a peace wall in Belfast. He just thought, found it absolutely extraordinary. And then when we started digging beneath the surface, why are they there? Why did they come about? You know, we always had patterns of segregation in this city after 69 and the population movements. become some of the biggest in Western Europe after the Second World War. It's quite extraordinary. You know, those peace walls become a necessity for some communities. I was talking about this earlier today. 2013, or then power share and executive, came up with, a, I love this, a policy aspiration not a policy, just an aspiration, <laughs> to have the walls taken down by 2023. And I've done a lot of mediation work in the past with interface communities. And people have said to me, how did it come up with 2023? And I said, it's as scientific as this. It took 2013, they added 10. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the process, you know. One wall has come down about 18 months ago between Ardoin and Woodville Shangle. It was a pretty minor wall in terms of its size, but it was a very important wall strategically in terms of preventing violence or minimising violence. That took seven years of inter-community negotiation involving statutories, political representatives, community representatives. So I don't think in that sense they're outdated. They're horrible, they're grotesque, but they're actual they're they're the physical manifestation of the deeply, deeply problematic relationships that we have had here for several centuries within this city. You know, so to wish them away and say, oh, that's awful, that's terrible, it's not going to work. You mm-hmm. need to have a strategy about it. And if you look at that wall between Cooper, you know, Cooper Street and the Falls Shankle, I mean, the sad thing about that is, I mean, that started off as wooden fences with barbed wire in August 69, all be over by Christmas, you know. It's now higher uh, than the Berlin Wall ever was, and it's been in place longer than the Berlin Wall, you know. And that was a symbol of international you know, divide between East and West, etc. Our walls have outlasted that. And I've always said here, you know, people can wish the walls away. It's not going to happen. We're not having a revolution here. We're having an evolution. And these things will take an evolutionary long time to address themselves and to come down. Yep, they're horrible, but they're there, and they're there for the foreseeable future. Do you think 
Does shit like that embarrass the British government? Like, I don't know the British government really do embarrassment, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can think of many things that could have been embarrassed about and it didn't really seem to bother them too much. You know, I think they take the view of, you know, this is the way it is, it's the real politics, you know. Um, and the walls don't cause, I mean, Theresa May doesn't go to bed at night and think, oh, bollocks, there's still a wall between the falls and the yeah, shangle, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> you know, it's not top of her agenda. If you live in Belfast, it's a very real issue. But as well, one of the important things is people in those communities, by and large, the majority, and there's been lots of survey work and sort of vox pops done, people want them to remain because they feel physically and psychologically safer. And it is like, because I haven't a fucking clue, like the walls for me, like I said, it's something that happens on television, so I haven't a fucking clue. Like, is it to stop projectiles or is it to stop physical humans? Well, either or. or either both, or, yeah. Or both, yeah. And is, is there a little door? And well... How, that the, wasn't supposed to sound offensive, but it did. Yeah. Well, if you, if you take the... Is bit, there a little door? If you take the West Belfast wall, you know, it's perforated, it's hyphenated as it extends up from the city centre up to the bottom of Dennis Black Mountain area, etc. Yeah. And there are areas, particularly in the past, you have the dead zones, Northumberland Street, around Cooper, where you have a gate at the National Stand, a gate at the Loyalist End, right across the road and for pedestrians, and it's shut at six in the evenings. So that's still six the case. O'clock. Six o'clock in the evenings. Um, you have areas where you had security, uh, vehicular barriers, which could be lifted, etc. But there's a very real problem here. I mean, this isn't just the ugliness of the whole thing and the symbolism. Say you're living uh, on one side of the wall, they're all Victoria hospitals on the other. You yeah. have an emergency and you have to get to the hospital, and suddenly you're adding time onto a crucial yeah, journey. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. real nitty-gritty of how the walls affect communities in terms of access to services and facilities that are an absolute necessity. Yeah. So they have a very preventative role, arguably, in preventing violence, but they have a very detrimental impact on living everyday civic life. And that's a real big issue about the walls, you know. And I'll just give you a further example, though. People who were in Belfast in 1969 and remember the violence and the start of those population movements, there are people still alive today who remember that and they want to see the walls there because they saw the destruction in the population movements in 69. And there are people who've grown up in the wall, with the walls there and it's as ordinary as a postbox or a lamppost because it's always been part of your physical landscape. I have a friend who now lives in uh, mid-England, mid Leicestershire. She's back home last year. She grew up uh, on the, literally in a street carved by the West Belfast interface and she said it was only when she moved to England and got married that she realised that wall was an absolute normality. Up until that point it never occurred to her that it was abnormal in any way. It was a natural part yeah. of her landscape and childhood, you know. And would it be fair to say that then she was nostalgic about the wall? Oh yeah, yeah. She said, you know, the first couple of nights of married life in England she just couldn't sleep, she pined for that wall, you know. <laughs> Throwing up a few shoeboxes between her and her husband and the baby. That's it, yeah. Create a nice interface. One, one he, thing... He could do the seven years of negotiation and get access. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I do wonder about, right? What is the crack with, with say, the young people now who are born after the Good Friday Agreement, right? Who have mm -hmm. not... Like, what's their story? Like, I mean... Do you, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Well, there's no one total comprehensive answer. You have pockets, you have families that have had traditions and experiences. That's obviously handled on. It's intergenerational. So elements of it is, is not only sectarian, but obviously it's... Like in Limerick, we have family feuds. Yeah. So yeah. the sectarianism has bled into a, essentially a family feud. 
Well, perhaps broader than a family feud. You have kids who don't give a crap about it, didn't experience it. But the one thing that worries me, I've done work. Is, is it uncles and parents that are keeping it going? Or? Well, to a certain degree, but there's still that, there's that communal myth. I've worked in schools, both state, effectively, predominantly Protestant and Catholic maintained schools. And I've met kids born after the ceasefires who said to me things like, you know, Paul, it must have been exciting. It must have been brilliant. There must have been a valour, you know, a, a Romanticising this. Yep. Fighting for your community, fighting the Raa, fighting the Brits, etc. And I've talked about the debunking, debunking of that, of that romanticisation process. Also, I used to do a lot of mediation work. Sometimes we would have situations where kids would get involved in violence that appeared to be nominally sectarian. And one Sunday, it was after, of course, an old firm, Celtic Rangers or Rangers Celtic game, and we had people who were phone holders. We got money for them for networks, etc. And they're out as stewards and marshals on the peripheries of their communities, trying to persuade young people to get back. And there was actually one of the Republicans caught one of the kids from the Republican area, the markets, and he was texting one of the loyalist kids, saying, the Bon Jovis, the Provis, are moving us on, move round to such and such a street. Oh, my God. You know, so they were actually liaison. This was the, the recreational violence using social media, etc., and all the technology you have now. So the outside world, it looks sectarian, and you can understand why. But for some of the kids, it was a bit of crack. They actually had each other's mobile numbers and were communicating in order to, to get away from their own local authorities. So they're, like, looking at the fucking... The older generation is... is... Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're kind of telling them not to fucking have a bit of crack. Yeah. Former combatants, ex-prisoners, etc. were saying, don't be doing this. This is stuff we did in our past. And they're saying, why should we miss out in the fun? That you is know? fucking crazy, isn't it? Well, it's not crazy to you, but it, to me it is. Yeah. Um, I think it's very healthy. It gets them out of the house and not sitting on the iPad all the time and all, you know. No, but fresh air, like, run the boat, you know. Down south, like, down in fucking, down in Limerick, like, we've, we've got this song called Up the Ra. Right? Yes. Yeah, and it's not about up the ra at all. Like it has nothing to do with up the ra. What what it's about is when I grew up in Limerick, we'll say now I would have seen the, the troubles would have been something when I was a kid, when I was a mm. child, and then I would have been fucking maybe ten years of age when the Oma bombing happened. That would have mm. been that's the last thing I actually remember. Mm. So when we were growing up, if you were to be hard and masculine as a teenager, you would write Sierra loves Rira on the fucking bus stop. Do you know what I mean? You would write continuity IRA or real IRA mm. on a bus stop, but no one knew what it meant. And people were writing real IRA, and then beside it, they would draw Bob Marley. And then they would draw maybe Tupac, 
and then a speech bubble that says up the rack coming out of his mouth. <laughs> but like that was for real. That's what it was in Limerick. It's it's we didn't understand politically what any of it meant. We just understood that they were tokens of being a hard cunt who smokes hash and drinks. <laughs> and that's what it was. It's like Tupac says up the rack. You know you mm. know what I mean? Mm. Really. I'm not well, joking. We, we, we've the same thing here with Protestant kids drawing pictures of Willie Nelson saying of the UDA. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, do, like, have you, are your younger brothers and sisters born after the fucking Good Friday Agreement? Yeah. And like, did they give a shit about it? Did they? Is it hyper real for them now? You know what I mean? You're very quiet. You're a very silent community. <laughs> we've, we've, we've traumatized them. Traumatized them. Whatever you say, say nothing. Um, what's the crack with Protestants? That's a question that was put in. <laughs> that was an actual question from Twitter, and it was the first thing I saw. Well, there is none. They're all, they're all sitting in the house listening to country and western music oppressed, you know. And you, and you know what? Here's the thing. This is what... I got into a lot of trouble down south because I was calling communion wafers haunted bread. Yeah. Right? And I got into a lot of trouble from the Catholics for calling communion haunted bread. And if you are... I'm not... I'm not... I'm, I'm certainly not a Catholic. It was forced on me as a child. But... Good man myself. <laughs> He's after showing you his yokes, man. Dev's tonsils. But um I fucking what was I talking about before you showed me Devilier's mouth? Catholic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I forgot what I was talking about, man. What's the crack of Protestants? What's the crack of Protestants? Oh, the haunted bread, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, I got, I got. <laughs> so anyway, I got in trouble for saying haunted bread by the Catholics. But the thing is, if you're a Catholic, it is actually fucking haunted bread. It is, it is no, it is a piece of bread that is haunted by the ghost of a two thousand year old carpenter. For real, that's what happens. And a miracle occurs whereby when you eat the bread, you are not eating bread, it is the flesh of a ghost, of, from an Iron, an Iron Age ghost. That's what they believe. And they had a problem with me saying that. So whenever I got a mail from like a fucking priest or whatever, I go, oh, so you're a Protestant now, are you? Because it's true. If you have a problem with me calling it haunted bread, that means you're a Protestant. Do you agree? Implicitly. <laughs> But there, there's lots of crack with Protestants. The, the problem or the richness <laughs> of, of Protestantism is the sheer variety of Protestantism. You know, you go on the Shankill Road tonight, you see a fellow walking out of the bar full, he's got his boogie sped up, and the Methodist or the, will be up, you know, up hard that he has been actually gambling, that this is a terrible social place yeah, yeah. in the Holy city. You know? you know, so you have so many. So many friends. I remember being at a... Yeah, what's the deal with, like, I mean, have you got... Like, we've got nothing in Ireland. We've just got Catholics and the odd Protestants. Yeah. And I asked my ma years ago, what was the difference between Catholics and Protestants when you were growing up? She grew up in County Tipperary in the fucking 40s. She said, the only difference between a Protestant and a Catholic is that Protestants used to hide their drinking. 
<laughs> and she was dead serious, like, she wasn't joking. God, she never met my granny then on the shangle, who <laughs> was constantly full, you know. Um, no, you have that huge variety of Protestant, which is part of it. So would you still have Calvinists on the whole shebang? Oh, yes, you've got the predestined, you've got the elects, you've got the, the mortally doomed and all that. It's really brilliantly cheerful stuff. But I remember being at a, at a funeral of a friend's uh, father about ten years ago in a very, very Calvinistic Presbyterian congregation in South Armagh. And they're the very serious kind of very, very no serious. decoration. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's all plain walls and the good book, that's it. Yeah. And this young guy... Uh, give, us, uh, give us service, young Presbyterian minister, a lovely Minnie Cooper outside, all singing, all dancing, and he gave up, the, he gave up, and he did this whole thing about if you get killed on the way back to Belfast today, you know, you're not one with the Lord, even with the best intent in the world, you're burning in the hells of eternity. And I was with a, a friend with me was from a very Catholic Republican background, and she's just sitting nearly like this, going, Jesus Christ, get me out of here. And as we left, she was terrified at that darkness. As we left, we paused to let two older women go in front of us. Uh, two old dears, and one of them said to the other, we overheard them saying, said, wasn't that a lovely service? Fuck. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it just depends which flavour you get, too, which flavour you get, you know. <laughs> Here's one, right? What did the residents of the neighbourhoods that you give tours to, right? What did they make of being gawked at and gazed at by camera-carrying tourists? Well, they're not gawked. That doesn't happen. It's not that you're peering through people's windows saying, Sid, Mrs, can you show us your Virgin Mary up in the wall, your sacred yeah, heart up yeah. in the wall there, like, you know? I mean, you're going into places like the Falls and the Shankill. There are communities, and there are people in those communities, be they paramilitary or political, who want people to come because they want their narrative to be heard. Okay. They want their, their things, their symbols and their murals to be displayed. You know, so you're not being particularly invasive. And also, a lot of the tourism now, we're independent. DC Tours is very much an independent but, yeah, that's but a lot of them are promoted by groups such as ex-prisoners organisations, yeah. Costio on the Republican side, Epic on the Loyalist side. So, you know... And people would argue as well, it may bring something to the local economy too. There may be benefits and maybe having 100, 200 people pass through the but falls. But they're going to go into the local shop if they're thirsty. And then you get ex-UVF follow them around with hairdryers to make them extra thirsty. And then they go into the... That's, it, that's exactly it. Yeah. Throw salt at them and everything, yeah. you know. But actually, what you said there about, okay, some elements of the community would actually be happy that the tours are there because mm. they're telling their specific narrative, right? Mm. But what you do is you, you don't have a, an ideology or narrative behind your tours. You're very straight down the middle, historical facts. Well, we present narratives and different interpretations and leave it to people to draw their own conclusions from what they've seen or heard on that But occasion. do local heads from either side of the community go, fuck you, start, start saying that we're the class ones? No. It's very interesting. It really is interesting because we go into the falls, we go into the shankle. The local tour guides, you know, very often acknowledge us very warmly. Um, we've had people, local people coming over here from, say, an ex-prisoner background, saying, delighted to see you here, hope you're enjoying the tour, hope you're having a good experience of Belfast, essentially. So it's a positive promotion of the city, be it loyalist or be it Republican or whatever else, positive promotion of what we think is a pretty good city in many ways. It's fucking class. It is... No. No, genuinely, I'm not just saying that because I'm here, but Jesus Christ, Belfast is unreal. Even though uh, down in Limerick we're technically stealing the film industry off you because of Brexit. <laughs> um, do you know that film that came out there, The Foreigner, where uh, Pierce Brosnan plays Jerry Adams? 
so it's Pierce Brosnan playing Jerry Adams fighting Jackie Chan. You've all seen it, yeah? Yeah. Have you seen it? No. Do you know about it? No. You don't know. You don't know about the film where Pierce Brosnan plays Jerry Adams and fights Jackie Chan. I think as soon as I hear Pierce Brosnan, I automatically disengage. I want to know, where are, are there a bunch of Chinese tourists coming to Belfast because of that film? I don't know, have well, you seen Is there? If there are, put them on to me, I'll take them out. <laughs> I, see, when I hear the phrase, take them out in a Belfast accent. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. What? Do I want another one of them? Donzo, would you like a... It's, it's not a Polish beer, actually. They got us... What, what is it? From Prague, isn't it? Yeah. Would you like a, a Prague beer there, Donzo? Thank you very much. Thank you. Willie's celebrating his, his 21st birthday today. <laughs> and he's got a... He's got a, he's got a tattoo of Holy Mary that looks like Lady Gaga. <laughs> and fucking Padre Pio on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and Willie, are you religious at all, are you? He's in his fuck. <laughs> I've seen him shelve all sorts up his hole. <laughs> now, here's a question, right? That you, you're allowed to tiptoe and be very cautious around. Okay. But it's something I, I'm interested in. Do you think collusion between the British and Loyalist death squads went to the very top of government? <laughs> you remember you were saying... And like, do you think take that would be good if they had another reunion? Yeah. <laughs> remember you were singing about being in purgatory and sitting on that fence with the splinters up your arse? This yeah. is the one I'm sort of going for here. The thing about the whole collusion debate is part of a whole bigger thing. It's the dirty war, it's the secret war, it's all the stuff that went on behind the scenes. And the key here is, it was all clandestine. By its very, very nature, we'll probably never know. If, Until certain people just Probably you're talking about intergenerational. Yeah. Basically, people have shuffled off this mortal coil. Will it be able to? Will it be an environment in which it's possible to actually bring out a lot of what went on here? I mean, we talked earlier on, talked about the MRF, the four square laundry. Yeah. You know, there was stuff going on there, particularly between 71 and 73, where they are. MRF, some of which has come to the fore. People like Martin Dillon have written about it, etc. But it's you know it's the old iceberg. There's and I'm guessing and there's so much beneath the surface. It's a lot of fucking powerful people in the British government. It's very very embarrassing for the British government mm -hmm. because once that stuff gets out, like as soon as I heard about the MRF, it's like right then I knew nobody has any moral ground. Mm -hmm. At that point, all sides were involved in fucking terrorism. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, you know about the MRF, obviously, and the laundry and all that shit. Yeah. Which is I kind of admire them a little bit because the laundry thing is kind of clever. That was right. That was, come on, let's come on, let's fucking li <laughs> let's clean their laundry and find out if they're making bombs. Yeah. And also, we're we're I mean, we're sitting here in Antrim Road. MRF had another uh, covert operation here uh, between '71 and '73. And it was particularly after the killings of the three Scottish Fusilier uh, soldiers, Subbot Leg and This was very much a response to the intelligence gathering. And that was the uh, Gemini uh, massage parlour on the Antrim Road, which employed young English women from the oldest profession in the world. The place was bugged under surveillance, under recording, etc. 
and they were basically encouraging local nationalists and Republicans, including uh, a senator who was later very brutally killed by loyalists, but simply encouraged them to boast of their localised knowledge and the pillow talk after the event, etc. And they were gleaning very, very key information about a lot of this. And at the time, special branch here, who was very much in the likes these days, you know, they were hitting the ground running. They were all over the place in terms of intelligence gathering, etc. MRF were guys with British intelligence background who had been in places like Kenya, etc. And they said, right, the local guys are amateurish. They're not up to speed here. We'll go in and we'll do the speed work. And then, arguably, they started, even by the standards of the time, to get out of control. You know, and were sort of thwarted and, and, and special branches were promoted. What they're accused of, just for the listeners, is they essentially sparked sectarianism. They tried to get the, the Raz conflict against the British Army to become sectarian by pretending that they were unionists and shooting innocent people in Catholic areas. Well, I mean, there was certainly plenty of sectarianism already there, you know, but what they, there was allegations that they had people who went out, undertook activities Cart that looked Lynch, like they, they, they were loyalist activities, you know. Um, you know, but 71, 71, I always say in 71, we were really falling into the abyss. You know, all the relationships were breaking down. You had things like the Tartan gangs emerging. You had, you know, what, obviously what the Tartan gangs? Tartan gangs were young Protestant gangs, and they were a direct commemoration of the killing of the three Fusiliers, the three Scottish guys. And um, what's up with the Tartan element? The was Tartans Bay were... Bay City Rollers related? Well, funny, that came along. There, there was a fusion. The Tartan gangs were young, militant, angry Protestant teenagers primarily. They did wear the Tartan gear. This was a direct commemoration of the Scottish soldiers. Um, they had vigilante patrols. You can actually go on YouTube. There's a cracking YouTube video. It's a documentary. It's actually Max Hastings, who later becomes editor of the Daily Telegraph, talking to, filming the Tartan gangs in the East Belfast. Vigilante patrols involved in the very violent expulsions of Catholics in predominantly Protestant areas, and then very much a feeder into the larger loyalist paramilitary organisations, but very much a phenomena of the time. Now I say in 71, this place was really falling into the abyss. You can see the fracture in all the key relationships, and then you get the 72. 496 people killed here in one year, just mm -hmm. under 2,000 actual bomb explosions. You know, everything was out of control at that stage. Um. Did, did music or culture or anything like that help to, I don't know, create some type of fucking divide? Or not divide, fuck, what's the opposite of divide? <laughs> Connection. Unity. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, the undertones. A lot of people's focus on the punk thing, you know, you yeah. have the Good Vibrations movie and all the rest of it. You know, I was a young punk rocker, I had a Mohegan. My son now says I have a reverse Mohegan, cheeky little bastard. Um, but, oh. And, and actually, on one of our tours, our city centre tour, we go to what's now a housing executive office in Hill Street, but it was the site of the Harp Bar, and you have commemoration of the punk scene. Uh, you don't have any commemoration of a particularly vile gun and bomb attack on the same premises in 1975. But a lot of people look at the punk thing and say, it was anarchic, stiff little fingers, alternative ulster, that whole sort of anthem culture around punk here. And it did. You know, it broke down. It gives some people the first opportunity to have positive social contact with the other and in a very divided city. But at the same time, it wasn't a panacea to all our ills. You know, it was did it try and consciously transcend sectarianism as a movement? No, because well, punk was never really a movement, given the nature of punk. It was never going to be that cohesive. You well, know? I, don't, I wasn't born yet. I was a dirty thought in my father's mind. Like, right? I don't know. Again, I'm reading from Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, no, punk wasn't a movement, but what it did have was an energy that's challenged the old orthodoxies of the time. You know, um, SLF, I mean, Alternative Ulster, Suspect Device, all those songs are 
very political, without really offering a model. It's a, it knows what it's against. You did balance like the undertones, you know, the front yeah. the bog side, etc. But the bogs, you, you, you read this, my perfect. I book. took a piss beside the lead singer of the undertones. Man, you know, you look at some of their songs, they so avoided politics. My perfect cousin, you know, Mars Bar, going down Spar to get a Mars right, Bar. Okay, you know, yeah, so yeah. It's not exactly firing up the barricades on the bog side sort yeah, of stuff, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you had just those different directions. Did they become irreverent? Hmm? They went irreverent. Rather they went irreverent, they went a bit poppy, etc. And then ironically, when they broke up, the two O'Neill brothers went into that petrol of ocean, who were very, very nationalistic in their lyrics and, and, and their songs. Was there, was there sectarian punk? Was there punk? Like, I, I know that there was... I'm just thinking of England. There was fucking... There was Nazi punk in England. There was mm. bands like Screwdriver and shit like that. Yeah. Did that equate... Was there either nationalist punk or unionist punk or anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I was, say, I was a young punk. It's not my recollection of it. Um, certainly later, I mean, what we did have, again, was more the skinhead culture, which became quite sectarian, etc. Johnny Adair was in a, a, yeah. a neo-Nazi yeah, skinhead Jack band, etc. Yeah. You know? So on the skinhead side, with it's more leaning towards a very right-wing ideology, you had more of a manifestation of that. Punk tended to be scattered, as it was, but essentially either non-sectarian or anti-sectarian, and not an anti-sectarian are two different entities as well. Mm -hmm. what, what is the crack with uh, the likes of Combat 18 identifying with the likes of Johnny Adair, or, or the, the German lads? Oh, the Hamburg lads, etc. Yeah, that, like they yeah. have, like I saw a documentary and they have a fucking shrine to Johnny Adair, like mm -hmm. what's, what, why? Well, he fits the bill, doesn't he? You know? <laughs> He's big, he's bulky, blue-eyed, sort of, he has these fairly right-wing ideas, etc. But does, is Johnny there, um, is it just Catholics that are his gripe? <laughs> no, because he absolutely, he, he absolutely hated the UVF as well, you know? <laughs> absolutely hated the UVF, which led to that Shankle feud in the early 2000s. Adair, I mean, if you look at that incident that led that incident, that day that led to the Shankle feud, the march, the culture march, etc. You know, it was actually very, very interesting in terms of its mimicry of Nazi sort of propaganda, the culture day, the banners, the military. He actually stood in the Lord Shankle estate that night and he read out a list of names of people to be expelled from the community. It was classic sort of right-wing stuff. And, and he was obviously, he had an eye towards what was happening in Europe. And he was le learning from him or taking from him? He was like he was learning and taking and they were looking at him sometimes. But the vast majority of people, despite his idolisation and his self-promotion in many ways, the vast majority of people in Shankle Road were terrified of Johnny Adair or absolutely were felt abhorred by Johnny Adair, you know? Now what's he up to notice? Hmm? What's he up to notice? I can tell you exactly. I... <laughs> not, not that I'm a tout, by the way. Let's be very careful about this. I had a couple on a tour last year. And I said, where are you from? Young married couple. And they said, we're from Troon, West Scotland. And I went, oh, we exported one of our most famous sons over to you. And they, and they said, we know he lives five doors from our house. And I went, lovely, lovely. And then the, the woman said, in fairness to him, his garden's lovely. <laughs> we would have thunk it, you know. But that's that pure fucking Protestant thing, isn't it? Keep a nice garden. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Keep a nice garden, hide yeah. your drinking. Uh -huh. Nice, rigid borders, etc. <laughs> um, what's the level of awareness of the basic facts of the situation from British tourists? 
I'll give you an example earlier on, the guy the other day, same age as me, so he grew up with this as the backdrop, being astounded that when he saw the Peace Walk in West Belfast. So, again, it's like everything, you know, there's a paradigm. There's a, for, I've had people who are hugely aware, you know, their knowledge of, of the politics and history of here is probably equivalent to many people's here. Um, I had a lovely tour one time, this woman at the end, very, very articulate, very engaging, and at the end she said to me, actually, said, I said, you knew a lot about this, and she said, yeah, my family were technically, though it never really transpired, were under threat from the IRA. And I said, why? And she said, oh, my mother was a politician. And I said, oh, who was she? And she said, you maybe haven't heard of her. Shirley Williams, one of the founders of the Gang of Four, you know. So you're getting those to people. And we've had people, it's really interesting, people come to tours, it's a personal journey. They're there to find out stuff to do with their own family history. It's not just an academic thing. It's not a dark, gory thing about what happened here, etc. Uh, and some very emotional moments. Once had a, an Australian father and son, we finished our city centre tour up at Oxford Street, River Lagan in the background, the Creams, and all it's great, great setting. The Da had left here, he's from County Armagh, going to Adelaide, and at the end of the tour, it was really it was a beautiful day, and he suddenly turns to his son, who's 21, Australian, never been here before, and he said, I have something to tell you, son, we didn't leave here just for, you know, the sun and the economy out in Australia, etc. And he revealed for the first time ever that a member of their family had been killed in a sectarian killing and the family fell apart and he couldn't deal with it. So he decided to get out of this place while he could. So it's this incredibly emotional moment of catharsis, you know, and confession. The son, the big sort of dopey Aussie, 21 years of age, slowly smiles and nods his head and goes, ah, that's why you're so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly this life with his... This, this damaged, awkward, difficult father suddenly made sense. So it went from catharsis to comedy within about three seconds. <laughs> so then, the last question I got, which received a strange amount of likes, ask him what he was doing when Norman Whiteside oh, scored in 1985 FA Cup final. Neil Garland, I know you're out there somewhere and I'll get you for this. What was I doing? I celebrated. Naturally, I celebrated. I just wasn't wearing any clothes at the time. <laughs> and I'd say absolutely nothing else about that. <laughs> Here. Any questions from the fucking audience? Okay, so your question was, you want to know what, what, what do people from the South think about people from the North and what is our current opinion of Brexit? Um, in that context. First of all, people from the South are fucking terrified of the North and people from, and people from the North, genuinely. Because like I said, we grew up in a hyper-real simulacrum of the North being... First, like, first of all, it was true fucking UTV, and UTV in the 90s was just beige. So, it was a very, a very, honestly, I'm being as honest as fuck. If you were from the South, the North was a very, a, a beige, violent place where occasionally you could get certain things for cheaper. And that was it. That was, that was the opinion of the fucking North, and... 
the first gigs that we did up north, like, we were, I was, we were fucking shitting it. Really, really fucking terrified. Like, we had to drive through Divis today, and we had our southern rage, and we're driving through there going, it's all right, it's Divis, it's Divis, it's Divis, no one cares about a southern rage. So... The f- what, another time we came here, we were in the car, and you started taking a fucking photograph of Muir, the King Billy, and we nearly boxed the head off you. <laughs> so, extreme paranoia, and terror, and fear, and kind of what people who are, uh, people from Dublin think of Limerick. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, I, I understand from, like, when I meet people in the north, they're like, will you shut the fuck up, it's grand, we live a normal life. <laughs> But I am a victim of the hyper-real narrative that, have, that has been given to me by the media. As regards Brexit, um, we feel very sorry for you. <laughs> That's all, you know, we feel very sorry for you, but like... And, and in Limerick, we're benefiting from the fact that George R. R. Martin is moving his operations down to Limerick. Um, I know, what can we say? Like, I mean, you've, you didn't want Brexit, you voted against Brexit, but now you're part of a... A union, and it's been quite clear that look at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're a fucking Protestant or Catholic or whatever, you go over to London and they call you a paddy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, um, most people down south, uh, like people are Republican to an extent, people are Republican when someone plays a Wolf Tone song, but most Irish people. The, the, the Irish flag, I consider to be a very beautiful thing because it's the green, white, and orange. Green represents the nationalists, orange represents the unionists or the, or the fucking Protestants, and white is the potential for unity and peace within it. And as well, I'm a big fan of Wolf Tone, which is based Wolf Tone's entire shtick, aside from being a big fan of Scooter. He was. <laughs> <laughs> Wolf Tone was a republicanism that transcends sectarianism. Do you know what I mean? But uh, a lot of people, they don't mind the North becoming an independent country as well. <laughs> Go on. I couldn't hear it now because of your, your shrill voice. Sorry, man. <laughs> Donzo didn't get to answer that question. What? Um, it's an interesting question, and that sort of you addressed that the, your man here about how do people in the South feel the North. So I don't really know how to speak on behalf of the people of the South, not being no, up there. No, fucking do it, man. No. Do it now. What, 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 what I can say is I can, I, can, I can go back into my little Belfast cocoon and, and, and microcosm and say, I know the people from South Belfast are fucking terrified of people from North Belfast, <laughs> which makes sense. Uh, in terms of the Brexit thing, I'm sort of quite out of kilter here. I sometimes uh, would have a pint in a, a local band hall, the Apprentice Boys Hall, close to where I live, and I think I'm the only person in the entire place who voted Remain. You know, so when I speak out like that, I tend to get the, you know, what the fuck do you know? You're a bizarre lefty type of thing, you know. But you know, it's a very real issue. And the people talk about, you know, the the financial aspect of the peace monies and the structure that we've, we've had enhanced and developed here in the capacity. But to me, it's it's nearly the whole zeitgeist. You know, that concept of post post conflict reconciliation and partnership between people who've been adversaries, the whole European model, and that very much, for better or for worse, influenced our political settlement here in terms of what happened in 1998. So there's a there's a very deep psychological issue there, and I think Brexit is just such a it's just a reversion to the past animosities and the old bad spirit, you know, which by and large had been not, you know, cured, 
but improved demonstrably way beyond what it had been 30, 40 years ago. So I think it's, we're on the road to disaster with us. And that doesn't make me popular. And Again, I haven't a fucking clue, but is it fair to say that uh, voting to leave the EU would have been a unionist thing here? Not totally. The majority of the unionist electorate who went out did vote to leave, but you can actually look but at... But why is that? Because it's like, if we leave the EU, we get to be part of Britain even more. There was, there was a certain degree of that. But you also... Is there suspicion that the EU are kind of want a united Ireland? There's going to be an element of that too. But there are certain unionist constituencies, more affluent unionist constituencies, where you could see that the majority of unions actually voted to remain. Ironically, it's in places like North Belfast, East Belfast, etc., which, you know, you walk around and there's so many of the community projects will have their EU you know, blue badge and acknowledgement, etc., and people have voted against the very thing that has actually sustained some of their community development working practice over the last 20, particularly since 93, when the peace money's really started to kick in. And, and was a lot of peace money European money? Yeah. Massively because the so. EU were just like, here, yeah. what are you doing, Britain? Yeah. What's the crack? Well, the British, the British and Irish governments, basically in the late, uh, early 90s, as we moved towards potential ceasefire situation, lobbied the European Union. The European Union were totally receptive to the idea of fight major, particularly after the economic onslaught of the campaigns here, but also that idea of fostering relationships, developing a peace dividend, making people stakeholders and you know, giving people a buy-in, made them more likely to engage potentially in a political dialogue that will lead to some form of agreement. That sounds all very perfect. There were many flaws with the European model. As somebody who had to do European applications and fill in evaluation of modern forms, you know, it was a bureaucratic nightmare, but it was part of a greater good certainly from mm -hmm. the work that I was doing, virtually for mediation work, adult education work, was virtually all funded for 20 years through the European Union. Um, one thing actually, the, the, the three points I made about the North there regarding being a Southerner were quite negative. Well, one of the things that <laughs> Southerners do, a positive that Southern people have towards the North is that we are envious of how politically engaged the, everyone seems to be. And we found that uh, during the Celtic Tiger, we didn't give a roaring shit about politics. As long as we had decking out the back garden, no one gave a shit about politics. <laughs> but when the recession hit, the average person started to care about what the fuck are the government doing, and we were quite envious of northern people knowing what the shit is at all times, because you have to. Do you know what I mean? Um, any other questions from the audience? You're not in the audience. Oh, this, this, go on. What's my favourite scooter song? Do you know what? Not, I was going to say raving in the UK. Not raving in the UK, raving in Ireland. They made one, yeah. The gentleman with the backwards hat. How the fuck did this turn into a conversation about scooter? Scooter look, and they look like fascists. They've got, they're German, they've got shaved blonde heads and they wear bomber jackets. Any non-scooter related questions? This, this man is standing up, his question is so tumescent. Yeah, yeah if you want, like, you give a shit. What are you waiting for my permission to vape? What's the, who, who's got a question? This lady with the glasses. Um, do you vote against like, primary marriage equality in Northern Ireland? Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. 
<laughs> Why is that even a question? Yep. No, no, no brainer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who's stopping that? Like, what, why can't you do that? Is it no, but like, is it like in, in Ireland we could, like, we couldn't do it because, um, referendum, it was in the constitution. Like, is it? Yeah. It's what? AOC. Petitioning concerns. So, like, in Australia, they just got their thing, but I don't think it was public vote. It's just the politicians were like, it's legal now. Is that how it is here, too? So, okay, a lot of people, when the issue of marriage equality was said there, a lot of people started shouting DUP. Yeah. Has it become sectarian? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> Has it? Yeah. What do you think, Danzo? Uh, well, certainly Sinn Féin are pro uh, equal marriage. The DUP most certainly are against it. The UUP tend to split between what's left of the Ulster Unionist Party, between their, their, their liberal secular faction, Mike, and the rest of the party. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, very interestingly though, the Progressive Unionist Party, who are associated with the Ulster Volunteer Force, have, have had a pro-equality pro stance on, the, on this very issue for quite some time now. You know, the hard men of the UVF are saying, yeah, you want to get married to another bloke, you want to get married to our own, fine, none of our business. So that's quite a strange one. And within the SDLP, where you have that sort of social democratic strain against the more traditionally Catholic nationalist strain, the Alistair McDonald's of the world, etc., you actually have a very real internal tension there about this very issue as well. You know, so it's not quite unionist nationalist. You can see tendencies one way in one community and tendencies one way in the other community. So it's becoming more religious. Because yeah. one thing, like, all right, within the complexity of fucking northern politics that we've discussed about this evening, is there an element of unionism that is opposing marriage equality simply because the Shinners are like, go on the gays. <laughs> but you know what I mean, like. But the Shinners will choose every opportunity to be progressive if they can. So is it is it reactionary? That's what I want to know. Is it reactionary, or is it because of their hardcore Christian that type of carry on? Because Catholics aren't fans of gays either. Well, certainly within the DUP, you have that very strong theological Protestant content and core within well, their party. Well, why don't Sinn Fein have that? They're supposed to be representing Catholics. And... Yeah. No, but seriously, like Catholics, yeah. like Catholics are agents, like. <laughs> like what? No, but like, wh why? Like, if if the unionists over here are very much about their, like you said, theological, mm -hmm. like I don't associate, uh, even though Sinn Fein represent nationalist Catholic community, I never associate um, that side of things with anything resembling what I would consider mm -hmm. Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I consider, for me, Catholicism is is. Magdalene laundries and very, very backward, repressive mm -hmm. views, and I never, I don't associate the likes of Sinn Féin with that at all, or Catholics up north, it's like Catholics, Catholicism is something dumb. I think this is another classic example of all the contradictions that sometimes come to the surface when you examine underneath. I mean, you know, unionists aspiring to be, and I've had this out with many uh, unionists and Protestant friends, aspiring to be as British as Finchley. And I say, well, what about the issue of gay marriage? What about the issue of abortion? Yeah. So suddenly you're totally out of kilter with, the, with, with Britain. With progressive yeah, Britishness. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And Sinn Féin are very strong on the equal marriage issue. But listen to Sinn Féin talking about the issue of abortion. Yes. And suddenly you start to see lots of tensions yeah, and yeah, internal yeah, yeah, yeah. in there as well, you know. So, do you reckon that Sinn Féin abortion thing is a, is a Catholic shame to carry on? 
there's as I'm not a Catholic, I'm not a member of Sinn Féin, so I can't but, speak on behalf of the broader movement. Say, like, the my... Well, if you listen to Francie Malloy at the last Ardèche talking about how this, this their, what was perceived to be a shifting position on abortion would not go down well in Tyrone. He was essentially in coded message talking about the Catholic mm-hmm. conservative core within constituencies like that. I view Sinn Féin's Catholicism not, not in terms of Sinn Féin giving a shit about Rome, but Sinn Féin giving a shit about Rome via Boston. Do you get me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That Sinn Féin, they don't give a shit about the Pope, they give a shit about the fact that the um, Irish Americans give a shit about the Pope. Mm-hmm. In the same way that fucking, I don't know, it was about two years ago, Sinn Féin were overdoing their fundraising, whatever to do with the Americans, and the Americans straight out said to them, it was about the water protests. Mm-hmm. They said, you're being a little bit socialist there over in Ireland, eh? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. But is that is does that make sense? That sh- like yeah. the Catholicism of Sinn Fein, it more has to do with Yanks than it has to do with the Pope. Money, money from the Yanks. Yeah. I've got a new song coming out called "The Yanks Love the IRA Until They Find Out That They're Socialist." <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll end it on that. That was. Uh... <laughs> Jesus, thanks very much for coming out, lads, and you were. <laughs> for being part of the First Life podcast. I hope it translates well for the internet. And uh, thank you very much to Donzo for fucking being unreal. All right. Yort, go in peace. So that was the interview with Donzo in Duncan in Belfast and I had a fucking amazing time. It was great crack as you can tell. The audience were unbelievable. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, fuck it. That was great crack. I learned a lot and hopefully the live podcast gigs from here on in will be that much crack and I'm really looking forward to getting out there and interviewing some interesting people and improving my interview techniques as well that's the first time it's the first time I've ever actually interviewed another person I'm usually the one being interviewed and it was quite humbling for me because when you're used to being interviewed you're used to being the centre of attention so I'm going to try and work on my listening skills and things like that and become a better interviewer to uh, accommodate the podcast and I hope it didn't diminish your podcast hug and you found that enjoyable this is also the longest fucking podcast we've ever had I think up to 89 minutes there so during that I I didn't want to interrupt the interview with the mid podcast um, advert so we'll have the ocarina pause now near the end And if you know the Ocarina pause, you'll know that some weeks you'll either hear a digitally inserted advert or me playing my delicious Spanish clay whistle, which I didn't bring to Belfast with me because it's too precious. Here's the Ocarina. This is dedicated to Donzo and the people of Duncan and the people of Shankill. Later on after that... 
interview actually me and some accomplices we went uh, for some delicious pints and we went to a place where there was a a Kaylee session some trad music and then we drove around at about two in the morning around the Duncarn estate and around the Shankill estate and I got some photographs taken of me in front of some sectarian murals which I wanted to do it to challenge my perception of Belfast normally you know I'd have been terrified fuck me I can't go into Shankill at two in the morning and get a photograph in front of a mural but I did it and it was grand and no one said nothing no one gave a shit because it's 2018 so go on peace uh, it'll be back to normal I think next next week with just your regular podcast and let me know if you enjoyed the live one if if you didn't if you found your, your podcast hug was interfered with what I might start doing is uh, maybe uploading the live podcast separately Hopefully I won't have to do that because that's twice the work for one week and I mightn't have the time. But I'll do that if needs be. God bless. Yort. Have a bit of crack. Uh, Look after yourself for the week. Thank you very much.